0: Well, good morning, church. Hope you guys had a good weekend so far. Thank you guys for joining in with us today. If you got a Bible, go ahead and go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're going to kind of go through verses 1 through 10. Today we're specifically unpacking verses 7 through 10. Um, We've been kind of going through a subpart of this series we've been in on identity. We believe that if you can understand who God is, then you'll know who you are. So much of our problems in this life is we just really don't know who we are. And we're struggling to be somebody we're not. And we've been leaning into how Paul writes to this church at Ephesus to help them know and be secure in who they are. So they're not trying to fake it. They're not trying to perform. They can be real. They can be authentic. They can be truly who God made them to be. So if you got a Bible, that's where we're going to be. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's read through those together and then pray and then see what God has for us. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 10. Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. And it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For as by grace you have been saved through faith, it is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for inspiring Paul to write this from a prison cell to a church who was struggling with who they were now because they had met you, Jesus. And Jesus, that same tension that they were in in Ephesus is the same tension that we're in here in McDonough. Whether we're old, whether we're young, God, we are all in this struggle trying to figure out who we are, what it means to be in you. Father, we have come to this point today, hopefully searching for truth. The truth about you and who you are And I pray that from that truth, we can figure out the truth about us and who we are, both as individuals and then collectively, God, as your church, as this family who's who's called out of the world into something different, but then shot right back into the world to make the world something different so Jesus, today I pray we don't show up at your word just coming to get some good self-help stuff to go out and to live a, live a better life, but, but we come to your word today hoping to be changed, hoping to take steps that lead us, not just to a life where we felt something good, but a life where we go out and we live in the good works that you have prepared far in advance for us to walk in. Jesus, I know in a room like this and any of the rooms where people are listening to this, there's all sorts of different things that people brought into this moment, but I pray that all of the noise, all of the anxiety, all of the fear, all of the everything that we brought into this time in your word would be quieted, that you would remove any distraction the enemy would set forth today so that your people, your children can clearly hear your words as a loving, caring kind father to them in your name. Amen. So the last three messages, this one kind of has a third, we've been essentially just drilling down into what is salvation? And we've rocked and rolled through this. And the first three verses is talking about who I am before salvation. The next passages that we leaned into last week is what Jesus did at my salvation. And today we're gonna dive into what happens after my salvation and who am I after my salvation? What do I do after I'm saved? And so I would highly, highly, highly recommend that if you haven't watched um, week one and two, that you go back and you lean into those. And I'll do my best to kind of summarize so you don't feel like you're walking into a movie at the last 25% of it. But we talked about who we were before salvation. And that's critical that we understand that. The Bible makes it really clear. And the Bible has kind of cornered the market on this. You're not gonna find too many world religions or, or ways of doing things that says what the Bible says about us. Most things just say, hey, given the right programs, you'll be okay. Given the right government, you'll be okay. If you just have enough resources, you'll be okay. If you learn the right things, and you're in an environment where you can be lifted up, you'll be okay. What the Bible does is something that almost no other place in our society does. The Bible comes in and goes, you are dead. There is nothing you could do to help yourself. There was no right environment. There was no right ideology. There was no right government. There was no right knowledge or amount of money that could have made you right before a holy God. You were dead in your sins and transgressions and you were drifting away you were disobedient and the bible says that there actually is a force of good and a force of evil and before you were in christ you were following you were as if you were a child of the spiritual forces of evil in this world namely the king of the evil satan himself and because of that you were destined for wrath for punishment because you had rebelled against a holy god a perfect god And we had to diagnose the problem as it was so we could fully be able to embrace the cure that comes in the next few passages. And it starts with my favorite conjunction in all of the world and says, but God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he reached in and he saved us. And last week we talked about the three things that happened at our salvation. It says that when we were saved, what happens is we were dead and now we're made alive. And then we're risen up with Christ, number two. And then number three, it says, now you are seated with him. And the same power that rose Christ from the grave, ascended him to heaven and gave him authority that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at his name. Now, those same three things have happened to us. So we have a dead to life power. We have risen power and we have ascended to the right hand of God, power made available to us. And all those things he puts in past tense and says, you were made alive. You were risen up. And then it says, you are seated with him. And it speaks to what we have coming for us that even though we may be literally sitting in this room, legally in Christ, we are seated with him at the right hand of God. He is, if we are in him, he has reinstated our royalty through Jesus's blood, now being the blood in which we're under, not our blood guilt of sin, now under the blood of Christ, we have had our royalty reinstated and now we're part of a family, a kingly line. Which brings us to where we're at today of okay, Man, if that's who I was before salvation, if this is what Jesus did in salvation, what in the world does it look like to live out of this salvation that has happened to me now? And so we pick up with verse seven. Verse seven, this is right after he's got through saying, this is what happens in Christ, that you are, you are made alive, that you are risen, that you are seated with him. And he says, so that, and he points to the future, so that in the coming ages, he, that's Jesus, might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I can't spend a ton of time here, but let me summarize what he's saying right there. It's powerful. He says, God loves you so much. God loves you so much that it will take him all of eternity to reveal that love to you. It's a big deal and it's complicated. It's complex, so much so that the father, the father you were made to see his face of. That father loves you enough. and His love is so vast, so wide, so high, so deep that he will spend the rest of eternity expressing and exclaiming and showing you every nook and cranny of his love for you. That's how much he loves you. I know that can be hard to believe but I'm praying by faith, you can. He goes on from here in verse eight. He explains how this happened. He says, it "Is by grace that you have been saved. And grace is this free, unmerited. There's nothing to, in and of yourself that you did. It's, it's no, no working out of you. It's just the divine favor of God that this gift of grace came to you. For grace, you have been saved through faith. So to kind of pair these two things together, in the first few verses, Paul is saying is that what happens in sin is you put yourself in the place that only God deserves to be that you put yourself in the place who can rule over everything. You put yourself in the place as the one who can judge what is right or wrong. You followed the billboard that says, be true to you, do what makes you happy. And you said, I didn't need a billboard to tell me that. I've been doing that since birth. And you continue to rock and roll into that. And Paul is showing that that is the the root of sin. That's what it is. It's us putting ourselves in the place of God. But what Paul does here in this verse, he says, if sin's root was you putting yourself in place of God, then salvation is God putting himself in the place that you are. Putting you in the place where you deserve to be. It's God saying, though I do not deserve to be on a cross, they do. I will go to their place where we said, I wanna be in God's place God in a grand twist of things said, you know what? The only way I can get out of this or get you out of this is if I go to your place. Theologian, John Stott, uh, he he wrote a commentary on Ephesians. that has been super helpful for me as I've gone through this. The way he put it was this. He actually says it way better than I ever could. He's a lot smarter than I am. He says the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. And the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be and God puts himself where only we deserve to be. If you wanna close your eyes and see what that looks like, see Jesus hanging on a cross, naked in front of the crowd, crown of thorns upon his head, nails in his hands, feet laid one over the other with a nine inch nail through them on a Roman tool of torture. That's where you deserve to be and that's where God went for you and for me. That is salvation. He says, it is by grace alone that that would happen. And you may think about that and you may see Jesus there on that cross and go, well, why did that have to happen like that? Like, why, why, did, why did he have to die that, that brutal? And why did he have to go through those things? Let me explain it maybe to you like this. So I really love my wife. And, I, and one of the things I try to do as a husband is I try to show my wife that I actually love her and that I uh, don't just need her to, to do chores and make sure we get fed and pay bills and to get kids to practices and all the, the, the million other things that she does as an amazing woman of God. And so if on Mother's Day, I came to her, and I said, honey, here's what I'm gonna do because I love you so much. I am going to go to Alaska and I'm going to get eaten by a bear because that's how much I love you. I will lay down my life before a bear before you. I will let that bear just gobble me up because I love you that much, honey. She will look at me and and her nice little Southern peach accent go, what kind of crack are you smoking? Trent. (laughs) But if after, on if on Mother's Day, I say, honey, here's what I've done this summer. I've, I've, I've paid for us to have a trip into the Alaskan backcountry place we've always wanted to go. And we're gonna go to Seward, Alaska, and we're gonna camp in the most beautiful places in the world. And while we're on that camping trip in July, we go and we're out there and then we're sleeping in our tent. And then we wake up to some ruffling on the nylon of the tent. And uh, I come out and I unzip the tent and I see this big, giant, just Kodiak grizzly bear standing outside of the tent for us. And I know I've got the ability to outrun my wife. Like, I'm a collegiate athlete. (laughs) I run miles every week. You know, I I know for sure that my knees can get me out of the place and that, that I don't deserve necessarily to be the one. If it's just survival of the fittest, as the world would say, I can get out of this and she can be bear snacks. But where it makes absolutely no sense, if I say, hey, you stay here, I'm gonna go to Alaska and die by a bear. That's not love, that's just stupid. But if at the campsite, I'm willing to lay down my life, if I'm willing to do everything I can to distract, to fight, to take risk of eyes being gouged out of, I really serve no chance against Kodiak grizzly bear. I'm dead. And hopefully the bear munching on me as I lay down my life for her, gives her enough time to live. And at my funeral, I believe she would say that was sacrificial love. And now if I had just left her in McDonough and went to Alaska and just got eaten for the heck of it, is that love? No, that's stupidity. The point I'm trying to make is you deserved to die. And and again, in our Western culture, that is very hard for us to get our minds around. And if you want more on that, go to week one to unpack the reality of our predicament. But what God does is he comes in and he says, the place that you deserve to be in, which was death, taking the full punishment, drinking the wrath of God, as Isaiah, I think Isaiah would put it down to the dregs. That is what we deserved. And God says, I'm going to send myself to face that for you. And it is by grace that you have been saved. Now, I want to unpack something here that you've got to understand. If you can get that, I need you to get this literally this. I know some of you are like, why do you have this highlighted? You really usually highlight like cool words, like grace and love and mercy and predestined and stuff like that. Why this? Well, That word this is what has divided so many churches, so many congregations, the two kind of primary lines in Protestant um, thinking are actually divided on that line of this because based off of how you take this and what you think this right there is referring to is really what determines whether you are an Armenian or you're in a Calvinist camp. See, what is the gift? So if he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god so what does that mean that even the faith i have that saved me is a gift from god well then i didn't do anything nothing at all and like i, I thought i raised my hand i thought i walked the aisle i thought I, there was i got ba- i thought i did i thought i believed i tell people i got saved where is it where am i in that well the calvinist way of thinking would say yes salvation is is a gift from god but even the faith that gave you salvation is a gift from god now i don't buy that so our, our and again i love and respect and and I, I still believe this is not something that's a deal breaker from them being able to receive salvation that line of thinking, I think the only reason I don't believe that is just because it goes against things that I see happen in Jesus' life. And anytime I, have, I come to a conundrum or something I don't understand that Paul says, I just go see what Jesus did. And that kind of gives me clues. So if even my faith is a gift from God, what doesn't make sense anymore is a time where Jesus gets frustrated at people because of their lack of what? Faith, right? So Jesus shows up to people and, and over time and time again, we see them in the gospel and he gets in the boat with the disciples and he goes, oh, why do you have such a lack of faith? Now, if faith is a gift, how can you get mad at people for not having it? If faith is a gift that only God can give you, why get upset about people? So it'd be like if I was sitting down with, with my kid and when they were really little and they you know, couldn't reach the, the fork cabinet and I get mad at my kid because they're eating with their hands and I haven't given them a fork. I'm not gonna look at my kid and go, oh, you have a little fork. Why would you not use it? I, like I'm the one who gives the fork. And then the other side of that is true as well. Time, one time in specifics, Jesus meets the centurion. And the centurion is like, hey Jesus, I boss people around. I know you can boss the spirits around and everything else. My servant's at home, he's really sick. We ain't got time for us to go all through town. And everybody else, I see how everybody stops you and everything else, there's no way we get there in time. Okay, so Jesus, you just say the word and I know he'll be healed. And it's recorded that Jesus goes, In all of Jerusalem, he had not seen anybody with as much faith, as this Roman centurion. And so he's kind of giving this guy a gold star on faith. And again, if that is just a gift that he either gives or doesn't give, why would Jesus be excited, blown away, even a little flabbergasted at this guy's faith if it was a gift he already knew he had? And so the question then becomes, okay, and again, I hope you're still tracking with me here. The question then becomes, well, what is this this talking about? Is the faith a gift? Our Calvinistic brothers would go, yes, the faith is a gift and it was irresistible. That's actually, uh, Calvinistic thinking is, there's five points of it. It makes an acronym TULIP. The I stands for irresistible grace, which means that God picks and chooses who he's gonna give the gift of faith to. And the I means irresistible faith. It means like you can't choose whether or not you wanna receive it. You're just gonna get it and be happy with it. And they would say the gift is referring to faith. I would back that up to say, what he's referring to, this refers to not faith, but to salvation by grace through faith. So our Arminian, our, our, our side of things would say that this, and that, that this is the gift from God, would say the gift of God is salvation by grace through faith. That, that there is this point in time where we have to choose, I want this grace, I desire to be saved. I can't make salvation happen in and of myself. There's nothing I could do to save me, but there is this place where I have to go, this is something I'm gonna put faith in. Bible makes it very clear though, over and over again. And again, this is where Calvinists and Arminians would argue about this. They would say, well, you're saying your faith is a work, but the Bible makes it really clear, especially in the book of Romans, that faith is not a work, that even the faith I have is something that's brought about by God. And so this is, this is key for us to understand because what it reminds us is that faith is mission critical to receive the gift of God's grace, to receive salvation. He says in this, it's, it's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God. There is no amount of works that could save you, which is why he says this next in Ephesians two nine: It's not a result of works. You There was nothing you could have done to save yourself. This is not... Islam, this is not you come to the end of your life and if your good outweighs your bad, then you're in. This is not something where if you live a good life, you get reincarnated and you continue to level up till you get to this place. This is you are dead and God died for you. And through faith in him, through the grace that was on display, through the cross and empty tomb, you can actually have life. And not just life but the life that that God has available in him. He says, so it's not a result of works. Nobody's able to boast on this. It's not a result of works so that nobody can boast. Now we hear that word boast. And I think sometimes we think, oh, that's just talking about like, I can't brag about it. Like I can't be like, oh yeah, look what, look what I did. Look how good I am. And we think that's, that's kind of where we read boasting. But boasting was much deeper than that. And, and the people in the modern context that Paul was writing to in Ephesus, they would have maybe got this a little bit better than we do. Because one of the things that they were used to is anytime someone would go into, especially battle, what the militaries would do is they would kind of have, it's, it's, I believe it's where we get even pep rallies from. They would have this time before they were getting ready to show up the next morning and go into battle, they would take their whole military together and they would kind of look through their stat sheet. And they would go, well, we have 20,000 soldiers and they only have 10,000 soldiers. And we have spears that were made from the finest metal and all they have are shields. And we have this artillery and they don't have this thing. And we got elephants and they don't got elephants. I I don't know, make stuff up at this point. They would just say all those things and then that group of people would be like, yeah. Like they would just get fired up about those things. It's kind of, them looking in the mirror and giving them their self-affirmation. I am a good person. People like me. I have what it takes. I can do good things. And what they were doing was just getting themselves fired up to go face potentially imminent death. But it's the same thing that we do when we try to get ourselves fired up about these things. And so we get ourselves to these places where we can boast in our good works. We boast in how good we are at these things so that we can go out and face whatever war is coming that day. And what Paul is saying here through the power of the Holy Spirit is boasting is over. Now, what he knows is that most of us find our self-worth and our identity in how we look down on other people and compare ourselves to other people. And it goes through the whole classes. Lower class people, the people like in pop, below the poverty line, they look at the middle class and the wealthy and they go, yeah. They're the ones who are lying and cheating and they're oppressing me and this is why I'm here. And I have no problem stealing or, or doing what I can to get by. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care. I, I'll do what I gotta do to feed my family. I, I, I don't care. These people are the ones who are the problem. And so their sense of self-worth and identity comes from looking down on middle class, upper class. Middle class, they look both ways. Middle class looks down on the poor and says, if they would just get their stuff together, if they just, you know, will work a little harder, they could get out of that. And looks at the upper class and goes, they're spoon fed. They're just entitled. That's just how they got that. And that's where they get their self-worth and their self-identity. And the upper class looks down at the middle class and goes, if you, just, you you had all the opportunities, if you had just made a few different decisions and everything else, you could have been there. And it looks at their lower class and kind of says the same thing, but a little bit harsher. And so much of our self-worth, so much of our identity, so much of who we think we are comes from looking at other people and measuring what they're doing and measuring what's going on in their life compared to our own stat sheet. And guys, maybe you've realized this, that's incredibly depressing and draining. And you still find yourself going, I still don't measure up. Cause you look in the mirror and everything's good for a while. When you're looking around people, you're around people who you're doing a little bit better than they are. And then you bump into some people who are, who are doing way better than you, who are in a different tax bracket. And you're like, I don't know about this tax bracket. Wow. This is crazy up here. And you find yourself on the hamster wheel. This is a rat race of American life. And you're tired. Many of you are tired talk to a lot of young people, Gen Z, millennials. are just like, I'm ready to just give up on it all. I think the rise in teen suicide, there's all this pressure put on them and a crazy amount of pressure. And mentally, they're just not cognitively to the place where they can handle the amount of pressure that's put on them by parents, by schools, by the images that they see on social media. And they're tired. And what Paul is doing here, he's saying, the end of finding your significance in what you could boast about yourself in comparison to anybody else, that day is over. You can breathe. You can rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. the, the uh, The playing field is level at the foot of the cross and there is no wealthy elite. There is no poverty stricken slumlord who is any better than anybody else at the foot of the cross, we're all wretched dead sinners. How dead is a rich person compared to a poor person? They're both dead. There are no varying degrees. And so he says, boasting is done. Which should give us some hope, right? Because now we don't have to look forward to just you know, a week vacation to Panama City to go, oh, I get a break from the boasting. I just get to go and rest and, and just chill out. Because what happens? Well, you gotta post pictures on it. So you can feel like you can keep up. <laughs> and then if that's not your thing, you know, the the boasting wears you out and you can't find your significance and you feel like you're burning the candle at both ends. And so it's long, well, I'm, I'm gonna come home and have a couple extra glasses of wine, maybe two or three drags and Coke. Maybe smoke a blunt because I can't go on a vacation. At least I'll just have a, a brain vacation to numb the weariness. And if you're a little bit more worried about what the neighbors think about those kind of things, then you just, and bypass God altogether. And maybe go find a doctor who'll give you a pill to make you feel the way you wanna feel. And Jesus comes to us and he very tenderly looks at us in the eyes and says, friend, boasting is over. Your identity, your worth is not something you have to scramble for. It's not something you should feel anxious about. If you ever doubt how much that you are worth to God, look at the cross, see that you're worth God to God and let that free you to a place where now you're full of joy. Like imagine it like this, say you go on vacation and you don't post any pictures about it. You go on vacation and while you're on vacation, I say, hey, I went to your house (laughs) because I'm a pastor and I just show up at your house randomly. And I went to your house and I was just rummaging around. I was in the neighborhood. I saw I dropped by, you left your door unlocked. So I just went in and uh, I helped myself to some stuff in the fridge. And I noticed there were some bills on the table. And uh, I just want you to know, I tell you this on your, on your way back from vacation, you're sitting in traffic around Macon. And I tell you, hey, I just want you to know, I paid, I paid one of your bills. And, and then it, service kind of clicks up and, and, and the phone, the call is dropped. Well, you on that line, you're kind of happy, right? But your happiness is really determined by what? Which bill I paid, <laughs> right? Now, now, like if you come in and, and, and like the bill that I tell you I paid was like the school since you won that school is getting ready to start and you, you know, your kid, you owed like, a, you, you missed like a dollar and 50 cents on lunch bill and you need to square that bill up. And I'm like, yeah, that's the one I got for you. Well, you're like, okay, thanks pastor. Um, <laughs> But if I tell you, but, but, but then I call you back because the call dropped and I say, hey, I, I want you to know, I love you guys. I paid, your, I, I, I paid your mortgage. And you're like, oh man, you paid our mortgage for this month, man. So thank you so much. You paid our mortgage because I paid off a pretty big debt. You're just, you're, just, you know, you're wiping tears. You're, thank, you're, you're trying to be spiritual about it, even though you just got through cussing out the kids in the back seat because the iPad died. And you're, you're just so thankful and gracious. And, I, and, and after you get through rambling and rambling and rambling, I go, no, 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 no. I didn't pay a month. I paid your mortgage, like your mortgage, your mortgage. Like how many more times do you think you'll come in and complain about like a bad sermon that I preach? (laughs) None, because because here's the deal. Like when you've been forgiven and when you've had a debt that big paid off, you live with this joy. You're not finding things to get angry and frustrated about. You've had this debt paid, this huge debt paid off. And now you live with the sense of joy. You live with a sense of freedom. Now you look at your house, not as a burden. You look at your house as a blessing. Somebody has paid for this whole house. Man, I, I, well, I, I better sign up to host a small group here, by God. <laughs> like, you're going to look at it completely different. And that's what I'm saying. If we've been saved by grace through faith, we have to understand that we have had an enormous, unimaginable debt paid by Jesus for us. And so that should change the way we live. And we shouldn't live with this dull, dry, joyless, bored existence. We've had that debt paid. And the reason that I can tell that some of you are not saved is because you don't have joy. And Jesus walks up to us. He pays the biggest debt. He pays our life debt off. And he goes, all right, be free. You're free. And that's kind of what takes us into verses 10. This is what we're free to walk into. I'll skip that. I ain't got time for that. Um, Ephesians 2.10. Sorry. Uh, For we... He says, this is what you're free to do, okay? So all that's happened. Now we're free. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for these good works. And again, if you don't understand the work that Jesus did on the cross for you, see, we get the order backwards. We wanna work and then we get Jesus. Jesus goes, no, I do the work and you get me and then we can actually go to work because it's my work through you. So we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's unpack this as we wind down our time first of all he says we are his workmanship the greek word there for workmanship is this word poema what do you what word do you think we get from that poem now i know for some of you red-blooded blue-collar american males in the room like it doesn't fire you up to know your god's poem um but and me neither uh but know that that's not what the word necessarily means that you're God's work of poetry is where we get the word from. But oftentimes, that word workmanship, poema, is translated masterpiece. It's his handiwork, it's his craftiness. It's this. this master creation from God. And so what he's saying here is that you're not just this junk. You're not the white elephant gift that God really didn't want that he got. He's going, God, I knew everything about you. He created you. He has a big giant plan for you. And this is the God who has planned all this out from the very beginning. And I'm gonna bust bust a little bubble here. He says, we're his workmanship, but this is kind of a clause. We're his workmanship creating Christ Jesus. So, the point that I would try to make here is you will never experience the fullness of the workmanship of God in your life if it is not in Christ Jesus. Again, I, I told you from the very beginning of this whole whole Ephesians thing, it was all lives and breathes and it's banked on those two words, in Christ. Because out of Christ, you will never experience the poema. You will never experience truly what his masterpiece, his handiwork in your life will be. You will only experience that in Christ. Out of Christ, your poem will end in tragedy. It'll be one of those depressing poems that you get to the end and you go, weird. And some of your lives right now, it's like one of those haikus and you read it and it's just like, the first part doesn't make sense. Second part makes even less sense. And the third part doesn't even seem like it goes with the first and the second. And you're sitting here going, none of this makes sense. And I'm telling you, that's how life will end if it's not in Christ. Nothing will make sense. It will end in tragedy. But the only way to turn your poema from tragedy into triumph is for it to be in Christ. The triumphant one over death, sin, and hell. That's where it comes from. So we are created in Christ Jesus for these good works, for good. Work. Now we get to walk in some of this for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's talk about what in the world this means. First of all, what it means is that we are not saved by works; that our works is not what saves us. What it means is that our result our work is a result of his work, so whatever we'll do in this life is a result of the work that he's done in, in our lives now hear me on this what I'm not saying is that you're saved by works you are saved by faith and faith alone, but faith never stands alone in the truth like the the proof positive that you really have faith is that you do works It'd be like if I walked in here and I showed up like twenty 20 minutes late to the part where I'm supposed to preach. And for some reason y'all all stuck around and I came in, I said, guys, man, I was, I was coming in from the parking lot and a, and a grand piano fell on my head and just busted everywhere. I think somebody dropped out of a helicopter. I don't know what was going on. And I got hit by this grand piano, it fell on my head, just busted, it landed straight on my head, knocked me down, just, you know, it just busted the whole piano out and everything else. And I looked exactly as good as I do right now. You would be like, you're, you would just be like, you're a liar. There's no way a grand piano fell on your head because you should look different you you, supposed to be some kind of change in you. Like there should at least be a dent in your head or something. (laughs) And and I think that's what the onlooking world looks at us and and says the same things. Say, I heard you say you were saved. I see that sticker on the back of your car. I see you put your kids in that school. It's a Christian school. Well, you look the same. We look the same. The church people are doing the same thing that the non-church people are doing. It's like, what's different? And see, this is, this is where we know we're living out and salvation is real because the good works come with it. I, I would put it away like this. You can put this in your pipe and smoke it. God has done a good work in our lives so that we can do his work in our lives. That's, that's the whole point. This is the point of your life is because he's done that good work, because he's brought that salvation, because he's paid off that debt. Now, okay, I can do his work in my life. And this whole workmanship thing—it got me reminded of this statue. Yeah, I had to put some—I had to put some—I had to put some shorts on him. He—he uh, he had a, a dangling participle, um, and uh, had to put some clothes on my boy here. Um, but this—this this is the sculpture. You guys know who this is, right? It's a Bible character. This is David. Okay, um, Michelangelo sculpted this. I mean, and this is one of, like, one of the artistic wonders of the world, the this, this sculpture of David. And one of the things that Michelangelo talked about when he was interviewed by people talking about this sculpture, he said, as he would come to this giant block of marble, he would look at it and what he would do is he would see what was in there. His whole thing was, I believe that David, as he looks in this picture, minus shorts, I believe that David is inside of that marble. My job is to bring all of the, everything else off of David so that he can come forth. See, I think the same thing is happening with God and us. He looks at us and he doesn't see what's there. He sees what could be. We should bring you some confidence that God looks at your life. And I know you, there's some things that you look at and you see in your life and you wish they weren't there. Listen, God does too. But God doesn't look at your life and just become consumed with everything that shouldn't be there. He looks at your life and he sees what could be. And he wants to chisel away every aspect of who you are not so that you can be who you are. He has made you to be as his workmanship. Now I'm gonna say something that you probably aren't gonna believe. God has a call on your life. Every single one of you Rich, poor, young, old. God has a specific, unique call on your life. Now, what I'm not saying is he's calling you to be a pastor like I am. He's calling you to get up here like Eric. For some of you, maybe that will be the case. He's calling you to go serve in children's ministry, student ministry. That's likely not the case. The Bible actually says for those roles, that's probably like the only gift in the Bible where the Bible's like, yeah, you should probably not want to do that. Like think twice before you do this, you're going to be held to a higher thing. But everybody, it says everybody has been given a gift a gift from the Holy spirit to be used for the edification of the body of Christ. And for the sake of this mission, this God given mission for us to go into the world, to make disciples, everybody has been given a gift so that that could be a part of your life. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, you are God's workmanship creating Christ is to do good works. What are those good works? And are you walking in them? Here's what I would say to every single person here today there's a call on your life. And if you are not walking in the good works that God's prepared for your life, no wonder you're as bored as you are because you're just trying to make ends meet. But God has a big, crazy plan for your life. And I think when we talk about God's work and things that God wants to do, we think, well, that means I've just got to be this person who leads a Bible study or, or does this thing at class or, or gets on a stage or goes to Bible college and everything else. But listen, there's so many different gifts in the body of Christ. And there's so many things that it takes because again, reminder, we are a family and it takes all sorts of different things for a family to function. Same way it takes all different things for your body to function, all right? Take for example, your gallbladder, all right? Anybody ever had a gallbladder removed? You don't raise your hand, there's a HIPAA violation. Um <laughs> Uh, I didn't see you. Um, well, okay. So from what I gather about a gallbladder, a gallbladder is not this like glamorous part. You know, nobody's posting pictures of their gallbladder on Instagram. You know, like it's just this, it's this part of our body that, that produces bile. Gross. That's that's, that's not like, a, like ooh, yeah, man, tell me about your gallbladder. Like it's not a bicep or tricep, a calf. It's none of those things. But for those of you who've had a gallbladder removed, right? I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand again. For those of you who've had a gallbladder removed, you know that when that part of your body was infected, it affected every single part of your being. When it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, whoo, you were in trouble. And I would say the same thing. Like we have to quit as far as you figuring out your place and your part in what the local church and what our family of God will do. We've got to stop thinking that everybody's going to be biceps, triceps, eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. Some of us, you're going to be a gallbladder. And you've got to do it or we won't be who we're called to be. And and, and the point I'm trying to make in this is you are, will never experience the joy that God would give to you if you just punt all of the church stuff to paid staff and go, we'll encourage you guys. I'll give you guys gift cards to Dairy Queen so you'll feel good about yourselves, but I'm gonna root you on, you guys do it. Let me tell you something. There's this award in the NBA, that's called the Six Man Award. And it goes to the person who comes off the bench and does some good things in the game and then they go back to the bench. And it's the person who's the most influential non-starter in the whole team, in the whole league. And I'm telling you, there's no such thing as a sixth man in the church. There is no bench, you're either on the field or you're out. And God's call is that everybody would get out of the stands and walk into it. And here's my confession to you, for us as a church, and this is kind of what you're sensing, some of the change and some of the differences beginning to happen here for us as a church. And if you're, you know, hold on, there's more coming. We haven't done a good enough job about when you raise your hand and go, I wanna figure that out, us coming alongside of you and helping you figure out what that gift is and then throwing you into that thing, walking alongside of you and showing you how to do it. What we believe is our call is not to recruit and pay the 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 reverends, the bishops, the evangelists for the work of the ministry. We're going to get into this when we get into the later part of Ephesians. But Paul actually says, he talks to all what would kind of be the equivalent of the paid staff, the identified leaders of the church in Ephesus. And he tells them, your job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And that is, is what we're going to do everything that we can do. But at the end of the day, if you don't raise your hand and say, I'm ready to walk in this good work that God's prepared for me, I am his workmanship. I know even though I may be a gallbladder or a nose hair, like there's something for me to do in this family of faith so that the gospel spreads in this church and through the city in ways that it never has before, that you've, you've got to raise your hand and say, I'm ready to walk into that. And so today we're getting ready to turn your chair into a station where spiritual formation can happen. And I've told you, I'm just, I'm just over, and I don't wanna spend the next 20, 30 years of my life leading a church that is just a performance. Uh, this whole thing is not about us performing, it is us forming you into the image and likeness of Christ. And so I am not just gonna get up here, preach a sermon, sing some songs, and send you out on your merry way. I, and you can take, do with it what you wanna do with it, but I'm gonna give you opportunities for spiritual formation to happen. And the next 10 minutes, we're not gonna sing a song, We already did that. Uh, We're not going to do communion. We already did that. Your chair is turning into a spiritual formation station where I'm going to invite you to take this next step card that everybody has. And I'm going to invite you to look at volunteering at your church in a different way than you ever have before. To look at it as a way for God to allow you as his workmanship to allow you now to walk out of whatever you were in, into The good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. Now, I know what some of you are saying right now. You're going, bro, (laughs) been here, done this. You don't know me, man. I'm on my second marriage. You don't know me, man. Like, I've been addicted to some stuff for a while, and I'm just like barely nipping out of that. You don't know me, man. I don't know a whole lot about the Bible. To which I would say, why are you making it so much about you? Do you really think that God can't redeem your 20 years of addiction and weaponize it to go and be used to fight against darkness? Do you really think that God who wasn't held down by death can be held down by your ability or inability? (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Like, again, you remember when we were talking about boasting? See, what some of you are doing right now in your head is just boasting in the negative way. You're boasting yourself out of your, uh, uh, you're boasting yourself into your comfort zone, and talking God out of what He's trying to talk you into. Well, God, I can't. Oh, God, I don't know how. God, I don't know enough about the Bible. God, I, I don't even know how to work my cell phone. I can't serve on the tech team. God, I just. And and the God of all wisdom, all knowledge, and all power is looking up in heaven. Goes. And, and not in a mean way. Hear me, he's not doing this in a mean, like I'm angry at you way. Again, it's back to the joy thing. You, I've walked with God and I'm not very old, but I feel like I've walked with him enough to know that, that God, he will definitely sometimes gut kick you into spiritual formation. More and more, what I've seen though is God wants to stir your affection and love and that be what actually changes you. And so he's not mad at you. I think as a loving father, he's going, son, daughter, I've got something better for you. I want you to experience the joy that it is to be in the waters and baptize a coworker. Son and daughter, I want you to experience the joy of being sneezed on in children's ministry. There's nothing like it. Son, I want you to experience what it's like to get a text from a middle schooler at 12 a.m. when he says, hey, would you please pray with me? Because everything in me wants to look at porn. See, you think getting a corner office is gonna cut it and I'm telling you, it's not. You think getting married is gonna cut it, it's not. It will come through walking in the work that he's prepared to advance for you. That's where your joy is gonna be found and you will rob him of that joy. If you just say, I'll just let the people who are already serving do it. I'll just let the staff do it. No friend, this is a moment for us to be able to walk into the work that Jesus has called us to. And so here's how this can look, okay? If you're a person who's like, I don't like writing on stuff, that's fine. Um, You can take a picture of that QR code and it'll take you to our volunteer link. If you're watching online, that's how you need to do it. If you're here in person, take one of those next cards. It's right there in front of you. Uh, fill it out. Obviously, we're going to need to follow up with you via your name. Write it so we can read it. I know some of you. That's how you do it. You get out of it. You like. Oh, I'm just going to scribble this on here. I'm going to leave a number out of my email. Look, we've tried. Like, okay. Like my staff, we're, we're, we're go getters. Like we're gonna we're gonna be after this because again, this is our job. Like I, honestly, like maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, but like I, I kind of like the size of our staff right now. I'd rather just raise up some more, some more volunteers and some more volunteers and some more volunteers and some more volunteers and continue to give ministry away to you guys. Like I'm not going, well, let's just grow and let's just go hire 17 more people to do the work. Well, what if those people are already here? And I think they are. And some of you may be through this card, the next person who does become someone who is on staff, or you may become the next person who starts a ministry to single moms to work on their cars because you started actually caring for them in children's ministry. But if you never take a step out of your comfort zone, then you'll never know. Like and part of my job is to use God's word to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And if if you point to me the last time in your walk with Christ, you were uncomfortable, I will tell you that's the last time you grew. And so if you're racking your brain right now to try to think of the last time spiritually you were uncomfortable, that's a problem. And I'm glad I could create one of those times for you today. So I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna give you a chance to fill your stuff out on here. The different areas are right here to briefly kind of show you what these mean. Connect team, that's our team that um, is basically the, the, the face of our church as they welcome people in. This is the people wear the red shirts, they welcome home. This is the people who help people's very first time at a church being awesome. They're the ones who make MCC a place where people go, man, I just walked in, just something, it just felt like home. That's the connect team. Children's ministry, uh, that's preschool and elementary age kids. So many different roles there. Not every one of those roles is in classrooms. Some of those roles are safety oriented. That's thats a lot of those different roles. Uh, student ministry is another one that's working with middle schoolers and high schoolers. Huge need right there. Uh, worship ministry, that's both. Uh, that's primarily kind of what's going on on stage right here. Uh, playing them instruments, doing those types of things. And production is what's going on back of the house. And that's, I said this to the first service because there are some people in there who have flip phones. Even if all you can operate is a flip phone, they can train you to do anything that is production. Like you are already smart enough you have passed this test, all right. If you can't operate a flip phone, sorry, can't use you. All right, we can. You can serve somewhere else. So, you got it. there's there's a different place. You're, we're not gonna try to fit a gallbladder somewhere it doesn't need to be. All right. Communications. This is this is what our, our amazing communications director Kendall Gregory leads up. This is this is what shows who we are as a family to the rest of the world. Looking through the window that is social media, the window that is our website, and the window that is all of our email communications. And so, taking pictures, running social media accounts. We're looking forward to giving a lot of that away. So, and we're kind of working towards it so that uh, teenagers are are running our social media accounts because they're the best at it anyway. Uh, landscaping. Obviously, that, that that one makes a lot of sense. You know, we don't pay somebody to do all this. We keep up this ground that. God God has given us and save loads of money so we can do more work for the sake of the gospel because we're able to have volunteers come and show up on Tuesday morning week in week out and do some amazing things there Um, another one's facilities similar thing this is a big building it takes a lot to keep it up same way it takes a lot to for you to keep up the house you own this is where we keep up the house that we own as well Another one of these that's not necessarily on there is our, our safety team, what was you know sometimes referred to as security. that's another place where where we try to make a really safe and secure environment both for families, for kids, for all those things. and that's these roles. And this may not be where your story ends. It may be I started in children's ministry and then I something else says God stirred a passion but if you're not putting yourself in the pot for God to stir you around, then you're missing out. And so like I said, your chair in this moment becomes a station for spiritual formation. I know for some of you, you're like, nah, this isn't for me. I hope you keep coming back and I hope God keeps giving you opportunities to ignore him. I mean that, but they're not guaranteed. And so today I would say soften your heart while he's still knocking. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love and grace moving your people so that we're formed more and more into your image, more and more in your likeness. We're your workmanship, God. And remind us we're not saved by our works, but we're saved to them. And the life you've given us, the true life, the real life, it will only come through walking in what you've called us to work out. And I thank you for what you're doing at this church what you're doing in and through it and I pray now God you would start a movement that cannot be stopped by all the power and dark forces of this world that you would begin to work inside the hearts minds and humans in this room Jesus so that um, what ails our city is cured by the sake of the gospel for the sake of the gospel because of a movement a groundswell that started on a summer Sunday in McDonough, Georgia in your name Amen